This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Mohammed bin Zayed, who we all affectionately call MBZ. How would you describe his worldview, his mindset, his vision. This is the heart of your piece, right? Sure, yeah. I think his vision uh, of the Emirates and the Arab world's future is, well, first of all, it's not democratic, we should say that, although it does have its own sort of, how to put it, uh, certain forms of accountability, you know, in which people can bring concerns to, to the ruling family. And I don't think he would use this word, but I think it's, at least in relative terms in the Arab world, it's a secular vision. He does not want to see political Islam taking over that region. And I think he's immensely, immensely concerned about that. I think that Iran since 79 has been a tremendous concern for the Emiratis, a feeling that right next door they have this radical revolutionary power. And there were times when they would encourage, I think somewhat irresponsibly, they would encourage the United States to be more aggressive with Iran without really adequately recognizing or understanding how dangerous that would be for them. After all, they're the first line of defense. They're right across the water. You can practically see Iran from from the UAE coastline. And I think they've recently become more realistic about that. They've seen that Trump, who they initially welcomed as someone who's going to be a tougher opponent of Iran, is actually very unpredictable. And so they have now undertaken, and I think they pioneered this and the Saudis followed, a sort of quiet diplomacy with Iran in an effort that to make sure that at least they are not targeted if there's a war. I mean, that, that may be impossible. How do you think he sees Russian and Chinese attempts to gain some influence in the region? I think he sees Russia and China as important powers that uh, he needs. He needs to balance his relationship with the United States with these guys. And I think with Russia, my sense is that his principal goal is to pull Russia away from Iran. But I think he also figures that, you know, he needs to be working with them if they're involved in the region. Robert Wirth is an award-winning journalist who focuses on the Middle East. He was the New York Times correspondent in Baghdad, from 2003 to 2006, and its bureau chief in Beirut from 2007 till 2011. Robert just published a piece in the New York Times Sunday Magazine on one of the Middle East's most important 
but least well-understood leaders, Mohammed bin Zayed of the United Arab Emirates. I just sat down with Robert to talk about the piece, and we'll be right back with that conversation after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Robert, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on Intelligence Matters. It's a pleasure to be here. Robert, as you know, I read your piece in the New York Times Sunday Magazine, I think it was January 9th, on Mohammed bin Zayed, who we all affectionately call MBZ. And we can do that throughout this piece. And I read it with great interest. I've known MBZ for many years, and I think this is the first profile that I've ever seen of him, number one. And number two, I think you did a terrific job capturing him. So I wanted you to have you on the podcast to talk about him because I think he is an important and an extraordinary person. So maybe the place to start is to ask you why you wrote the piece in the first place. Why'd you want to do this? Well, I had I'd heard a lot about MBZ over the years. He's someone who is very well known to policymakers, as you know, um, He's, he keeps a low profile, though, so ordinary people really haven't heard much about him. I think part of that is because he's not the, you know, official ruler of the UAE. His, his brother remains the titular uh, president. Um, but he's really been exercising the levers of power there for, for many years. And he's, he's a sophisticated thinker. I mean, that's one of the first things that people will tell you who know him well, you know, uh, uh, former you know, uh, uh, heads of state and so forth, who often go to see him and seek his advice. Military leaders, a number of them uh, had told me, including uh, General Mattis, I hope he doesn't mind me saying that, um, you know him well and respect his judgment. And then secondly, I wrote a book about the Arab Spring and its consequences. And I was very interested in the role of the UAE, specifically MBZ, who guided those efforts, um, in what happened there. It's, he's, he and, uh, let's say, the, the Emirates and the Saudis are often portrayed as the bad guys of the Arab Spring, as the sort of autocrats who snuffed out the hopes of right. Arab Democrats. Right. Right. And I had a feeling it was much more complicated, and I wanted to get a better understanding of how they saw all of those events. Yeah. Well, I was, I was one of those government officials who found him, and still find him, to be a very sophisticated thinker and someone who, who I always found great value in sitting down with and having a conversation about almost anything. So I'm not surprised you heard that from many people. Why do you, why do you think they decided to cooperate with you? Because they've been so reluctant to let him talk to a journalist, for example, and you had the opportunity to interview him. Why do you think they did that? I think it's a couple of reasons. I think one, they were independently, I think, moving closer towards being a little more transparent. He's He's made more, you know, head of state uh, visits to places. He's sort of come out a bit as, as being the decision maker in the Emirates. Um, and um, also I had, I had I'd lobbied them over some time. Um, and um, uh, they, I think the fact that I had written quite a bit about the Gulf over many years um, made, made a difference. And then finally, I wrote a story um, 
that came out in 2018 about a big ransom, a group of cutteries who were uh, falcon hunting in Iraq and were captured, and there was an enormous and complicated uh, captured ransom. By... Captured by a Shiite militia. Mm. Um, Iran played a big role in all of this. Mm. And I wrote a long story about how that happened, um, which, to be pretty frank about it, made Qatar look bad. Um, now, as you know, the Emirates is in a big, big uh, feud with, with Qatar. And I think um, that may, you know, inadvertently have endeared me to the Emirati leadership. So I think it was one of the, Robert, one of the first two paragraphs of your piece, but you called MBZ one of the most powerful men on earth. That's a quote. W- why? Well, if you just look at the amount uh, you know, the, the, the sovereign wealth funds of the Emirates, they're tremendous, uh, more than $1.3 trillion. Um, he's also developed a very sophisticated, small, but very sophisticated and efficient military. Really, uh, as far as I understand, you know, probably the, the best trained special forces, uh, apart from Israel, in, in the Middle East. And he's, right, yeah. and he's deployed them. Um, so he has the levers of power in several different ways. And also because unlike some other countries, he really, along with his brothers, is in charge, can make independent decisions without having to worry too much about domestic audience since it's a very small country. So for all those reasons, I think he's just sort of stands out. Okay, so for our listeners, let me ask you some questions about him personally. Who is he from a family pedigree perspective? Sure, he is the son of the founder um, uh, of the United Arab Emirates, the country was founded in 1971, and his father, Sheikh Zayed al-Nahyan, uh, is, a, is a, just a legendary, huge figure, really, I think, universally respected in the Middle East, because no one thought that country would really come together. It was a group of sheikhdoms on the north side of, of, of the Arabian coast, of the Arabian Peninsula, um, and they were fractious, and there was a history of fighting, even within some of those, some of those sheikhdoms, including Abu Dhabi, which is the largest, and that's the one MBC comes from. But Sheikh Zayed uh, was uh, very charismatic, very, very um, wise character who managed to pull them all together. And then, of course, you know, used the tremendous oil money they had wisely. And, and they built this incredible example of a peaceful and very developed country. You said his brother is, is actually the leader. And he's, he's got a couple roles, right? He's the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. And he's also the, def- the defense minister of the entire country. Mm-hmm. So how is it that he essentially becomes the leader of the whole place? Mm-hmm. His brother, Sheikh Khalifa, had a stroke years back and so was really kind of out of commission. Um, the titles that they have, the leaders of the different emirates, uh, are a little out of whack with their actual responsibilities. So, for instance, many people are more familiar with Sheikh Mohammed, uh, who's the ruler of Dubai, one of the, uh, seven, uh, the other seven emirates. Um, but Abu Dhabi has always been by far the large, by far the richest, and, in, and and just in geography, it's by far the largest of the emirates, and so that automatically gave you know its leader a, a greater share of power. And then finally, um, I think there's a kind of complex internal process in which people are sifted out, and there's a kind of a, it's not exactly democracy, but a kind of a collective judgment on who is most fit to to run the place. And I think for a number of years, it's been clear, both to outsiders and inside the Emirates, that Sheikh Mohammed was the guy. A little bit about his background, where he went to school, jobs he had in the run-up to his current roles. Sure. 
So he, um, when he was fairly young, when he was a teenager, his father sent him to Morocco, uh, where he lived and studied and even worked briefly in a restaurant. I think his father wanted to move him away from a place where he was seen as this sort of dauphin, you know, the, the heir apparent or, or one of the heirs apparent, and to, to toughen up him up a bit. And I think that worked. Um, he lived a pretty simple life. He studied there. He later went to a, a famously tough uh, boarding school in, in England uh, where uh, Prince Charles and other royals had, had gone. And then he went to Sandhurst, the, mm-hmm. the British military academy. And then he returned to the UAE where he followed a, a military path, um, learned how to fly, um, was an officer, progressed through the ranks, and, and eventually became the leader of, of the UAE's military. So how would you describe him as a person? I spent some time with him. How would you describe him? Yeah, you know, I've met a number of heads of state. And what's interesting is that when you sit down with him, you don't sense that sort of, how to put it, PR antenna that you see with a lot of heads of state who are sort of conscious always of how they sound and looking around or seeing who the audience is and so forth. He sits down, looks at you. You have this sense of a private conversation. He's very deliberate, soft-spoken, analytical. Um, there's something a little bit almost professorial about him. He's, he's charming, too. He's funny. I mean, he, he speaks, his, 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 I think I mentioned in the story, his, his accent is maybe slightly British, mm-hmm. but his vocabulary is definitely American. You know, mm-hmm. he'll say things like, come on, guys, uh, uh, let's do this. Let's not do this, whatever. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, and uh, he loves to surprise people. He's sort of, uh, he clearly has a sense of humor about that, sort of uh, playing off, the, you know, the image of, of the ruler. He'll, he loves to be informal, yes. kind of, um, you know, take you out for a walk to to show up in the in the helicopter that he's flying instead of instead of someone else and there's a there's a humility about him too right there is yeah yeah he doesn't compared with some uh arab you know rulers potentates sheikhs whatever that you come across he doesn't he doesn't present himself that way and i suppose that's that may be partly character and partly uh, a legacy of his father who was famously humble in the way that he approached people. I also partly be a calculation. I mean, that's people revere that quality in him. I wonder if his time in, in Morocco, you know, in, instilled some of that in him as well. I don't know. Um, it's, it's also, yeah, it's, it's possible. And again, I think that's partly the legacy of his father. His father did not want him to be, uh, he was very conscious, I think, early on of the danger of the oil money making a generation of spoiled brats who hadn't earned anything on their own. And I think his father wanted to to prevent that from happening to him. You talk about surprises and informality. Um, the first time that I went to the Emirates after I retired, he asked to see me and, you know, I was, car was sent to pick me up and I was taken to a, a small restaurant. And, you know, I had no idea where I was going, but this small restaurant where he was doing his meetings that day, not in some palace, but in a restaurant. So he's, he is absolutely what, what you said he was. How did you find him as an interview subject? Well, I should say I only spent an hour with him. I first met him um, in, with one of those surprises. I was attending an iftar during Ramadan, the evening breaking of the fast meal. And he just, to my complete surprise, walked up behind me and sort of tapped me on the shoulder and brought me in and sat me down next to him. So we spoke a little bit then. During the interview, he was, um, I mean, he was a great subject. He, he, he answered my questions and then he went off sometimes in slight digressions, which ended up being tremendously helpful for me because they were full of rich anecdote. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
and and he 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 didn't hold back. You know, he said some things that maybe he didn't want to be ultimately quoted on. So, how would you, Robert? How would you describe his worldview, his mindset, his vision? This is the heart of your piece, right? Sure. Yeah. I think you could compare him a little bit to Lee Kuan Yew. He wants to, de- to further develop the country, which after all was initially developed by his father. Um, and he wants to, I think, make Emiratis more disciplined. Education is immensely important, probably the most important thing to him. He wants to extend that. That's why he's worked so hard with NYU and other uh, you know, educational institutions he's brought there. Um, and I think his vision uh, of the Emirates and the Arab world's future is, well, first of all, it's not democratic. We should say that right out. Um, although it does have its own sort of, how to put it, uh, certain forms of accountability, you know, in which people can bring concerns to to the ruling family. Um, and I don't think he would use this word, but I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, at least in relative terms in the Arab world, it's a secular vision. He does not want to see political Islam taking over that region. And I think he's immensely, immensely concerned about that. He's seen what's happened in the past few decades, what happened starting in Iran with the Islamic revolution there, what happened um, with, with successive waves in the Sunni Arab world, what happened in Saudi Arabia, which is right next door and was a huge concern for him. He did not want to see that kind of Wahhabi extremism take over, and he's worked very hard to stop it. Has this vision been a constant for him for a long period of time, or has he grown into this, do you think? I think he's grown into it. I mean, I think um, it, it, it really... And after all, I should say, he was an Islamist in his thinking um, as a young man. So many people in this generation were. Um, it was partly because uh, his own father unwittingly had, had put a guy in charge of his son's education who was himself a Muslim Brotherhood uh, member, an Egyptian living in the Emirates. And he was under the sway of that thinking for several years. And then he, at some point, decided in the early 80s that it was completely irreconcilable with the kind of country you know, he was growing up in and with the kind of ruling system it had. Um, and so I think over time, as he saw how powerful that, you know, that how the, the Islamist thought was in the region, he began to develop a stronger desire to kind of push back against it. So, so you tell a story in the piece about a conversation that he had with his father right after 9-11. Can you tell that story? Sure. Um, this is when uh, his, he went to his father and said, this must have been, I guess, October um, 2011, said the Americans are going into Afghanistan. And uh, his father, Sheikh Zayed, was then quite an old man, said, well, we have to be there with them. We need to be fighting alongside them. And MBZ wasn't quite prepared for this. And uh, he said, well, how do, I, how do I sell this? I mean, you know, after all, this would mean Muslims killing Muslims, which is going to look bad. And his father then said, uh, so tell me, do you, do you like the Quran, the, the, the Hadith, you know, the Sunnah of the Prophet? And of course, he said, yes, of course. And he said, uh, do you think that this guy out there, Osama bin Laden in the mountains, is living according to our religion? And, uh, and he said, no, absolutely not. And he said, you're right. Our religion is being hijacked. And, and he ultimately takes on that view, correct? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and he told me that, that that really stuck with him. You mentioned kind of the Lee Kuan Yew of, of the Middle East. Do you, do you think he thinks about it that way? Does he have a role model in his mind? 
I don't think so. He, he certainly never mentioned Lee Kuan Yew. That was my thought. Um, I think actually Sheikh Mohammed, uh, the ruler of Dubai, who, um, you know, after all, got more attention, uh, you know, earlier, I think, for the way that he developed Dubai into this very flashy, both tourist and economic. Kind of uh, Disneyland feel. Disney, yeah, exactly. Kind of a crazy Disneyland. And I think he has mentioned Lee Kuan Yew um, as, as a kind of role model. I think for MBZ, it's less about, uh, you know, being an economic hub after all. Uh, Abu Dhabi is really sort of more the capital. It's more involved in political and financial military decisions. But I think he does want to build um, a place that is uh, where more or less secular values are being promoted, where um, he wants to build, um, uh, you know, a future where beyond oil. And he's worked very hard on that. That's one of the things that he doesn't get doesn't get talked about much, but, you know, he's he created this uh, alternative sovereign wealth fund, Mubadala, that has worked very hard in creating alternatives to oil. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Robert Wirth. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So, Robert, he's, he's deeply concerned about political Islam. And I think he would argue that more open democracies in the Middle East are more vulnerable to it. And you need a more authoritarian state to take it on. That's that convenient argument for him, right? But do you think at the end of the day, you know the region well, do you think that argument is right? That's a very tough question. And I think it really depends on the particular country. Um, When I look at the countries in the Middle East today, I I take great hope in looking at Tunisia. Mm which, as you know, is a democracy now. Um, uh, it's still troubled. It's still uh, very, got a very weak economy. But you do have a balance there between the uh, relatively moderate liberal uh, Islamist party and Nahda and the, the secular, principal secular party. Um, but I think that's because Tunisia was in a very different condition from just about every other country in the region. For the rest of them, unfortunately, you know, these uh, the, 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 the nominally democratic republics that emerged after the Second World War have just been cata- catastrophic. And, right. and we saw what happened. I was living in Iraq, you know, after the American invasion when this rapid introduction of American-style elections really seemed to, to make the country uh, more unstable and violent and, and, and help to propel it into a civil war. So I think that for a lot of those countries, some sort of benign autocracy may be the best way towards a more democratic future. So I want to ask you, Robert, about his views of his relationships with the other players in the region. And maybe the place to start is is us, the United States. How does he think about us? And I'll start by saying I've gotten earfuls over the years about U.S. policy. So I'll put that on the table. Sure. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I mean, first of all, the first thing to say is that there's a deep relationship. Um, His father uh, was very much in favor of a strong relationship with the United States. 
and and towards the West in general. You know, at a time when remember this was uh, so I had, uh, founded the country in 1971 um, when anti-imperialism was running very strong, Arab nationalism was, uh, nationalism was very strong. There were uh, countries that were nationalizing their oil. And Zion's attitude was, no, these people have the, the skills and the education and, and the wherewithal to help us, and we need to be friends with them. And so uh, MBZ, when he was growing up, absorbed that point of view, worked very closely as, the, as, as a military officer and later as the defense minister working with the Pentagon. But I think he was also anxious about the what came to be called the democracy agenda. Um, he felt that um, the United States should continue to value, value stability more in the region and that, you know, promoting elections was was often uh, meant being blind to the circumstances of those countries. I mean, you know, he saw what happened in Hamas with the elections there right. in 2006. Right. Um, I think they were very anxious about the American invasion of Iraq in the first place. Um, I think they would have probably preferred to have, if it were necessary in the first place, to invade to simply decapitate the regime and put a uh, you know a more clubbable figure in charge but not to change the system. Right. What about what about the Saudis? I mean you mentioned a little bit of concern about Wahhabism and the spread of it but his um, his relationship with Mohammed bin Salman the 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 crown prince of of Saudi Arabia how would how does he think about that? You know, I think Saudi Arabia was a huge huge maybe in some ways the biggest foreign concern for for uh, MBZ for, for many years just because it was right next door and it was so powerful, so rich. And I think he, the, the feeling sort of was we have to help the Saudis help themselves because the leadership there was, was feckless. Um, he would never say that, of course. Um, I think when he saw MBS come along, and, and, and he had actually, even under King, the late in the reign of King Abdullah, there had been a rapprochement and a feeling that they could work together. Um, so it started then. But when he saw MBS, he thought, okay, this is a young guy who's got bold ideas for reform, which were patterned, I think, in large measure on on the UAE and what MBZ had done. And he said, you know, this guy may be young, impetuous. Uh, he may make mistakes, but he's headed in the right direction. We really need to encourage him. And he told uh, his American counterparts, you know, you should, guys could get on board. I don't think he believed the, that the United States would be able to make that decision about who would be the next ruler. Right. Um, you know, that's really, that's a decision that's made in Saudi Arabia. Right. But what he did say was, please get to know this guy. So he, he actually mentored, has mentored um, MBS a bit. Yes, he has. I think um, the trouble there is that it's, um, nobody wants to admit that for, for, for various reasons. The, the Saudis see themselves as the, right. you know, the, the big gorilla the big in the region, right? They're yep. in charge, right? right. And, and even though um, MBZ is older than MBS, they don't want, if, if there's a mentoring relationship, they don't want to present it that way. And the Emirates, for the same reason, doesn't want to, you know, uh, get out of line. Um, they're keen to present themselves as a, an assisting partner. But it would certainly, I would say, be in our interest for him to be mentoring MBS. That would be actually a good thing. Exactly. Well, I, I certainly heard a lot of talk about that, especially after the, 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 the gruesome murder of Jamal Khashoggi, who I, I knew personally. And uh, I think there was a feeling, who is going to do it? Who is going to coach this guy? Who's going to, you know, I mean, after all, tell him you can't do this sort of thing. (laughs) Exactly right. I mean, if we can't get rid of him and replace him with someone else, which after all is a very perilous enterprise and probably beyond our powers, you know, who is going to help him change? And uh, a lot of people would say, well, the only person in a position to do that is MBZ. I'm not sure MBZ is in a position to do that, though, because especially now that uh, MBS is and has been in place for a number of years, 
he sees himself as the main guy. The Iranians. How does he think about the Iranians? I think, um, you know, as, as we said earlier, that, that Iran since 79 has been a tremendous concern for the Emiratis, a feeling that right next door they have this radical revolutionary power. Um, and there were times when they would, well, for many years, I should say, they would encourage, I think somewhat irresponsibly, they would encourage the United States to be more aggressive with Iran without really adequately recognizing or understanding how dangerous that would be for them. After all, they're the first line of defense. They're right across the water. You can practically see Iran right. from, from the UAE coastline. And I think they've recently become more realistic about that, um, not just because of Trump. You know, after all, under Obama, they felt that Obama was kind of throwing them out to the winds and sort of leaving them to, to Iran's mercies. But then they've seen that Trump, who they initially welcomed as someone who's going to be a tougher opponent of Iran, is actually very unpredictable. You know, that he's, he's made these gestures. He's, he assassinated Qasem Soleimani. And at other times, he seems to be saying, you know, sort it out yourselves. I want to, I want to, I want to pull my forces out of this region. It's not my problem. And so they have now um, undertaken, and I think they pioneered this and the Saudis followed, a sort of quiet diplomacy with Iran in an effort that, to make sure that at least they are not targeted if there's a war. I mean, that, that may be impossible, I think, and I hope they recognize that's impossible. You know, the notion that you can cut yourself out of a war right. is, is, is unrealistic. Particularly when you have a U.S. military base sitting there. Exactly, exactly. It's not going to work. How do you think he sees Russian and Chinese attempts to gain some influence in the region? Um, I think he sees Russia and China as important uh, powers that uh, he needs. He needs to balance his relationship with the United States with these guys. You know, he needs to, he sees that Russia is, for years now, has, been, has worked hard to play a powerful role in Syria and elsewhere. I mean, all, the Russia is really all over the place in the region. It wants to be a power broker. Um, and I think with Russia... My sense is that his principal goal is to pull Russia um, away from Iran. But I think he also figures that, you know, he needs to be working with them if they're involved in the region. With China, it's just a, a fact of their tremendous economic power, you know, in Africa, to a less extent in the Middle East. Um, uh, you know, if he doesn't get what he wants from American military suppliers, he's, he's, he's long been perfectly willing to deal with the Chinese. And he sees, you know, the belt... Belt and Road Initiative is something he's got to be part of. Yeah, you know, my sense a little bit is that that his his view of the Obama administration not being there for him and the Trump administration's unpredictability, he has no choice but to hedge a bit, right, and talk to the Russians and talk to the Chinese and be more engaged with them. It, it, it's just reality for him. It's real politique for him. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's right about that. So, Robert, NBC made a decision... In 2009, around 2009, to pursue a more activist foreign policy. Why did he do that? What were the drivers? I think, um, I think what really uh, began to move him in that direction, I mean, he had developed uh, a much stronger military. He saw the United States, first of all, playing a less active role in the region. He thought he couldn't rely on them anymore. And then when the Arab Spring happened, I think he was very anxious about political Islamists taking advantage of that vacuum. Um, and he wanted, he didn't think anyone else was going to, to play that role. There was an important meeting. I don't think I mentioned this in the, in the story, but 
a meeting of, of the Friends of Syria group, um, I think in Istanbul, and around 2012, 2013, at which there was a discussion about the Syrian rebels and who to back. And um, the foreign minister, MBZ's brother, Abdullah bin Zayed, said, look, I'm, we're getting concerned. A lot of these rebels are very, very Islamist. You know, we, we're going to end up repeating what happened in Afghanistan here. And the uh, Turkish and Qatari foreign minister said, no, 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 no. We, we can't worry about that. These guys are the best fighters. We just got to back them. And then when it's all done, when Assad's out, we'll, we'll figure out the rest. And um, Abdullah bin Zayed, ABZ as he's known, um, was was horrified, but also horrified that John Kerry, who was there and listening to this, did not step in, didn't did not mm. say anything. And that moment was later described to me by um, by MBZ and others as a, as, a, as an important moment when they realized, wait a minute, something's going on here. Uh, no one is recognizing how dangerous this is. What are some of the examples of the more activist foreign policy? That they've pursued well first of all they um uh, were very much involved i think in what happened in egypt in 2013 when um mohammed morsi the democratically elected president was overthrown and replaced by the military and and now we have sisi who has not been you know uh, in many ways has been a pretty disastrous uh, figure not a bastion uh, of yeah. of a, of a Demo- it's not thomas jefferson that's for that's putting it very mildly yes <laughs> And uh, in many ways has been more repressive than Mubarak was. Of course, you know, MBZ would make the argument and it's impossible to know. What if Morsi had stayed on and had led a thorough Islamization of the state? After all, uh, demographically and otherwise, Egypt is the anchor of the Arab world. That could potentially have been catastrophic. And that's the argument they will make. So that was, was, I think, the first and in many ways the most important intervention MBZ uh, was involved in. Then there was Libya where they had been involved along with NATO in 2011. But then as, as, as Libya collapsed and starting in 2013, um, they got more and more worried. And they eventually backed Khalifa Haftar, who is you know, a big enemy of Islamists of all stripes. And they have given all kinds of military support to him and continue to do so. And many people have criticized him heavily for that because after all, uh, Libya just seems to get worse and worse right. with the Turks back in the other side. Right. The Russians there now. The Russians are there, many foreign powers. Right. Um, and uh, then, of course, the other big place where he's been involved is uh, Yemen, where he joined the Saudi intervention, uh, the war in, in Yemen starting in 2015, which has been a catastrophe for that country. Um, I think the Emiratis recognized earlier, much, much earlier than the Saudis, that this was a very bad situation, and they, they pulled out. Um, but it took them a little too long to do that. They've also been involved in the Horn of Africa. Uh, the Emirates um, has backed militias in Somalia. And there again, I think, um, you know, much of this has gone badly. They ended up in a kind of proxy war with Qatar, which was, you know, almost everywhere backs the Islamist uh, militias. Um, but I should say the Emirates also played a very good uh, diplomatic role in the rapprochement between Ethiopia and Eritrea. So not all of their interventions are military and not all of them uh, end up badly. How do you think... He assesses how this more activist foreign policy has gone. I think he probably sees Yemen as, um, if not a mistake, then something that went badly. Um, they did try. The, the, the Emiratis tried very hard to create a political solution there. You know, um, they tried to work with uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was allied with the Houthis in Yemen, and they tried to tried to end that war. Um, you know, they failed for, for complicated reasons. It's a very yeah. messy, messy place. Um, I think NBC would defend it and say that, you know, he's 
what's happening now may look bad, but that's, you know, weighed against a what if, you know, weighed against the potential Islamization of these countries, which could, it's true, have been catastrophic. I mean, Libya, for instance, enormous supplies of weaponry um, and an important place on the Mediterranean coast could have been could have been really dangerous if it had become a theocracy. Right. So he he has this fear, right, of a dark future for the Middle East, um, which is leading him to behave the way he does both at home in trying to build a, a modern society, almost liberal modern society, and the way he behaves from a foreign policy perspective in the region. Do you think he's ultimately optimistic about the future of the region or or not? I think he is. I think he believes he's going to win. Um, but I think he believes he has to fight hard in order to do so. And some people would say that he's fighting too hard. I mean, for instance, you mentioned he's building a liberal society at home. Well, in certain respects, yes, he's empowered women. He's very much about pluralism. You know, you, you go to the Emirates and you see things you don't see in Saudi. You see uh, Hindu temples, you see Christian churches, all that kind of thing. But in terms of civil liberties, no way. I mean, that is a surveillance state where you are not, uh, you, you really better not criticize, not just the brotherhood, but, uh, but any, you know, any, express anything, any serious disagreement with, uh, with the government. Um, everyone is being watched and there's, there's quite a bit of fear about that in the population. So um, as a writer, I'm sure that some things were left on the cutting room floor in your piece. Was there anything that was taken out that you really wish would have would have made the cut? Well, one thing that I find interesting is the whole, the way that the uh, embargo with, with Cutter developed. Um, you know, it's a longstanding thing. It has personal elements, but it also has this, uh, this I think the most important part is this deep disagreement about the role of, this, of political Islam. And so in 2013 and 2014, there were meetings uh, between the Qatari Emir and the, um, and the leaders of the other Gulf powers where they, you know, it was very, very tough confrontational um, meetings. One of them in particular that I got accounts of that I had to take out in 2014 in which the young new Emir of Qatar was essentially, you know, uh, surrounded in a, in a hostile uh, meeting in, in, in Riyadh. And King Abdullah kind of read in the riot act and said, you know, uh, you, you're a liar. Mm. Um, you've, you've got to sign this paper in which you pledge to change all of your policies. And he mm. wouldn't do it. Mm. And they came to, came to a sort of standstill. And then finally, MBZ sort of whispered to the king and then took the emir of Qatar aside and talked to him for 15 minutes in full view of everybody else in the room um, and managed to persuade him to sign this document. Um, that's just one example of, of the intense rivalries within the Gulf that went on that um, maybe it was a little bit too inside baseball for the yeah, American yeah, readers. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great story. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. To the listeners, you can Google Robert Worth New York Times and you'll find a list of all the things that Robert has, has written, including this piece. And I would urge everybody to go read it. Robert, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That was Robert Worth. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.